Good morning, Grace. Let me tell you a true story about true power. In the late 70s, uh, the World Council of Churches sent uh, an ambassador into the former Soviet Union to do a, a checkup to see what the condition of the church was like under the harsh atheistic you know, violence that they were having to endure. And if you remember in the late 70s, the USSR was, it was at the peak of the Cold War and it was a high point for their power. If, if, if they grumbled, the world quaked. So anyway, he, he, re- he responded and, and gave a, a rather dismissive, kind of contempting response to the question of how's the church doing? And he said, it's just a bunch of old ladies praying. Well, in less than 15 years, the statue of the patron saints of this violent atheism, Stalin and Lenin, had been, those statues had been pulled to the ground and were melted down and some of the concrete ones were quarried and turned into ashtrays. So the moral of the story is, beware of a bunch of old ladies praying. Those old ladies made the Bolsheviks look like a bunch of kindergartners. There's power in prayer. Power. It's because you're, you're like, we're pray without ceasing. Talk to God, Almighty, about everything, all the time. Because it is His ambition, and since it is, it will come to fruition that He's going to make everything right. So tell Him what's on your heart. We're closing out our series in James today. This is our 12th week together talking about what he's preaching on. And I said because many scholars believe that James' epistle is just a sermon that's been transcribed. And the reason they, one of the many reasons is just if you look at the style itself, it's rather convincing. Introductions and conclusions are the most important part of any given speech. And he's got a great introduction and powerful conclusion. Introductions are to grab your attention and to introduce what the big idea is of that particular message. Here's what James says in his introduction. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds. Well, there you go. That's got my attention, and that introduces the point. And now we're off and running about how to live under many various hostile trials in the circumstances of life. Last week, we looked at words like be patient or long-suffering, endure. Those are passive words. Learn to take a punch like a farmer or a saint or Job. But what about, I don't know, punching back? (laughs) How about doing something active? That's what James is known for. And so in his conclusion, he's going to give us this two paragraphs, and in those two paragraphs, he's going to give us two action steps. He's going to give us two powerful disciplines for us to thrive in the context of living in various trials. Two paragraphs, two points. The first paragraph, the point is, you better pray. Let's just stop right there. We're going to say this back and forth to each other, so let's practice. I might note that it has an exclamation point. So say it like you're angry at me. 
Ready? I'm going to say better pray together. Ready? One, two, three. Better pray. That's the first point of, the, of his last two points of his sermon. This, this paragraph that we're talking about, there are six sentences. Prayer is used seven times. Prayer is in every single sentence. That's how he ends it. It's not uncommon for the writers of the epistles to end their, their letters to the churches in better pray. It's how the apostles kind of kept score on like the spiritual health of their congregation. And so Paul, five different letters that Paul writes, he ends with better pray. Peter in 1 Peter 4 and 5 ends with better pray. 1 Peter 4, 7 says, all that we know, you know, all things are coming to an end very soon. So he says, be alert, be sober, so that you can pray, so that you can pray. And so here's James, we can tell by his, his, what we've already studied already, he's a man of action. He's also super practical, known for being, you know, easy to understand. And now he's telling us this, better pray. This is how he's keeping score on spiritual health. And he's a person to know. Biographers say that his nickname was Camel Knees. Because his knees looked like camels. They were so calloused from him praying so often and so frequently. He, he knew that there was power there. That's the way the apostles kept score. That's the way we keep score at grace, believe it or not. We, we are monitoring the health of our congregation by... We're just making sure that we're not drifting from our mission in so many different ways. It's easy to do that. Like, are we helping people become like Christ or shepherding people to become like Christ? Or are we just getting everybody busy? Pretty easy to do in churches. So the way we kind of take a temperature, the way we keep score, is to listen for what people say without thinking. It's, it's what rolls off their tongues without reflection. And I'll tell you three ways we kind of do that, what we're listening for. One is when people grasp the idea that every believer is a minister. That I'm just the pastor, but you're the... You're the ministers, and you're on call all the time. And when we hear stories about circumstances that you're in, whether it's on a soccer field or at the water cooler, and people are in need to be cared for, you're not running to the church officials, you know, pastors for help. You're jumping in there and doing that. You're the one making meals or doing hospital visits or whatever might be needed. We love those stories. That's a sign of health. Another thing that we listen for, another value we listen for, when people say, without thinking, what does the Bible say? When people are watching the news or living life and they immediately respond, think about, I wonder what God's revelation has to say about what is right and real and true, that means that person has committed to an absolute authority that's different than every kind of truth that's ever been revealed and that will be the gold standard, the North Star of their life. That's a sign of spiritual health. Ministry, Bible authority, and this one. Better pray. Without thinking, just without being reminded, not having a chance to ponder, we're talking about muscle memory. Immediate response, we better pray. That's a sign of health. That means you understand you're talking to God Almighty about 
all things trivial to but like what I mean, I'm sorry. I mean, everything's trivia to him. <laughs> there are no big prayers. He's so powerful. So he'll take anything and everything we have to say. It's all important and it's all easy. When people say better pray, they get the power of prayer. Tommy Nelson, he's a pastor here in Texas, and he confessed when he was younger, he always felt like he was being weak by praying because he needed help or whatever. It just, he just said he didn't understand. He was weak. And then later he came to realize, as, a, as an older man said, praying is like launching missiles into enemy territory now. Spurgeon said it this way. I love this quote. Prayer is the slender nerve that moves the muscle of omnipotence. Prayer is the slender nerve that moves the muscle of all power. God himself. Jesus keeps score on how we're praying. He teaches a lot on prayer. When he's teaching about how to pray to the Father, he, he, he says, I think you're overthinking prayer. And I think you should change the way you view prayer as not like change or, I don't know, grinding your teeth for some discipline to be endured, but rather falling in love and then just talking to your lover all the time about everything. You, the father can't be bothered by your prayers. He, he enjoys hearing from you. And that's why he says, listen, he'll say three things that are the same, and then he's going to repeat it. So six times he's making one point. He says, ask and you will receive. Seek and you'll find. Knock and the door will be open to you. He says, anyone, so he says it again, anyone who asks will, will receive. And anybody who seeks will find. And anybody that knocks, the door will be open to them. So come on, let's go. The Father's not bothered by your prayers. And I go, wait, wait, why don't you pray? I know why you don't pray. You've been listening to the lies of Satan, who always talks about the Father being evil or bothered by your prayers. So the next three sentences, after ask, seek, and knock, Jesus says, okay, let me tell you about the good, good Father. If your son asked you for a loaf of bread, would you give him a rock? No. If he asked for a fish, would you give him a snake? No, you wouldn't. But you who are evil know how to give good things to your children. How much more would the loving Father in heaven give you, give, give you good gifts? So ask, seek, knock. Jesus is saying, just fall in love and talk to him about everything all the time. So this first application is better pray. And I know it's easy for maybe all of us to go straight into, oh, man, I'm embarrassed about my prayer life. I wish I could pray more. I wish I was better at prayer. And I want you to know I stumbled onto a quote that made me feel warm and good inside. Look what it says. This is from Brother Lawrence, by the way, before we put it up. The Brother Lawrence, the, the monk that's known for practicing the presence of God and having intimacy with God. Here's what he said about his prayer lives. For many years, it 
I was bothered by the thought that I was a failure at prayer. Then one day I realized I would always be a failure at prayer, and then I've gotten along much better ever since. <laughs> so, anybody want to join Brother Lawrence, me, another failure at prayer, with learning about what James has to say about, you know, how to pray? This is a barn burner conclusion on how to pray. You guys want in on that? That's where first service said, you bet, Matt. Yeah, <laughs> these two people over here, we're going to do that. Here's how we're going to do it. Uh, this is like a response reading, okay? This is a, this is a I'm going to say something, and then you're going to say something back. And the reason we're doing this is this whole idea that I mentioned before, muscle memory. Like if you learned a new skill, that coach would run drills by you. If you learned tennis, when, when they did the section on serving, the tennis coach would bring you a whole basket of balls and you just serve them all. It's called drills. You just do that one thing over and over again. After a while, your brain doesn't have to think anymore. It becomes muscle memory. We're looking at muscle memory for this section. And the muscle memory you're going to remember is better pray. I'm going to say, when do we pray? Some aspect of when to pray. And you're going to say, <laughs> no. Come on, just say, say, better pray angry. Say it with it. Don't say angry, but say it like you're angry. Say, ready? There we go. Now we're going. Coffee's flowing now. Okay, what would happen if we were suffering? Better pray. Look what verse 513 says. If anyone among you is suffering, let him pray. I'm not making this up. This is, what he, this is the way he's teaching it, okay? And so if you're in the context of suffering, Physically, absolutely. Emotionally, sure. Spiritually, he says, like last, last week we saw in the previous, he said, learn how to suffer long, maybe longer still. Don't take out that suffering on other people by being critical and envious. This week he's saying, better pray. He's saying, bring every aspect to that suffering to the throne of God. Every detail, every fear, Tell all things to the Father, and then listen. Listen. And James is not promising that you'll have a relief of suffering, though you might. He's not promising that you'll now understand why you're suffering, though you may. What he is saying is, if you're suffering, you should pray. Bring it to God. Talk to him early and often. The, I, you want to be close to God in your suffering so that you understand that you're not alone. You are not alone, but you need to understand that you're not alone. And you need to come to a place of peace and rest in your soul so that you might hear and you'll be ready to listen if he were to say, my grace is going to be sufficient for you. You can live with this, but not for long. So you better pray. What, what if you're cheerful? What if you're cheerful, what are you supposed to do? Better pray. Look what he says. Is anyone cheerful? <laughs> Let him sing praises. You see what he's saying there? Sometimes in our life, you know, all the red lights are turning green. Right when we get to him, it's like, this is, what a great day. I have a job, better pray. I can walk up a flight of stairs unassisted, better pray. I've got uh, a roof that doesn't leak, better pray. 
Got food in the refrigerator. Most of it hasn't expired. Better pray. I know how to read. Better pray. When we went to Israel a few years ago, they were kind of showing us Jewish culture, you know, customs. And one of them was when you're washing your hands after going to the bathroom, there's, there's a prayer that you say. That's basically, oh, dear God in heaven, thank you that everything works. And when you're younger, you're like, what in the world? But when you get older, you, oh, thank you, God in heaven. Like all this plumbing's working, like just now, anyway. If you have a single friend in all the world, better pray. Augustine said, whoever sings, prays twice. Yeah. What if you're sick? Better pray. Look what he, well, kind of better get prayer, but we're, gonna, we're staying with the theme here. So 14 and 15 says, is anyone among you sick? Let him call, if, he, if that's true, then let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will restore the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he's committed sins, they will be forgiven. Okay, let's show what this means. This, this section here is talking about a serious illness of any kind, again, body, soul, or spirit. And this person is wanting to bring uh, their illness to the attention of the delegated power and the delegated authority of the bride of Jesus Christ. Those are the elders of the church. And that, this person says, I want you to talk to God on my behalf. Maybe that's what's needed here. And if you see, there's kind of a, a weaving between their body illness and their soul and spirit. They're talking about confession of sin. Sometimes those are related, sometimes they're not. We'll talk more about that in the next point. But in this, in this situation, he's just saying, you know what? Sometimes when we get sick, it can really get our attention, can't it? I mean, it, it might not be the reason for our illness, but it can still cause that. There's something about being significantly ill for a period of time because we don't feel so strong anymore. There's seven miracles that take place uh, for the purpose of the disciples, and they're all in home court advantage of where those men are from. Up in the Sea of Galilee area, many of them actually work on the water, and it's where they feel strong. And the miracles made them feel weak. And so they called out to God. James or Peter is a fisherman, a very successful one from what we can tell, but he couldn't catch a thing. And then Jesus said, try the other side of the boat. And it swamped two of his boats. And he didn't know what to do. Never felt so weak. That these men were on, on that lake in torrential storms on two different occasions. Seasoned sailors, tough guys thinking they're going to die, and they're crying out to God. And it's interesting that in one of the stories where this happens, Jesus is sleeping on the boat, and the, and the wind and the waves, they don't wake Jesus, but the screams and the cries of the apostles, the disciples, that what, that's what woke Jesus up. Sometimes just getting knocked to the ground will wake us up a little bit. 
Well, in this context, uh, Jesus, uh, James is telling us, here's three things you do when you want this different group of people to be praying for you, the church, the bride of Christ. First thing he says is tell the church leadership. He says, let the, let the leaders know, the elders of that church know. And so that's what we're, I'm going to walk through this three points for some of you. Many people don't know this is part of the things that we do here at Grace, and it might not be part of your church experience. So you tell the church what's going on. We, we have pastor's meetings and elder meetings regularly, and sometimes we find out that someone's been ill for weeks, sometimes months, and we didn't know. And, it, and it's, I must tell you, it's painful to hear those stories because we can do things about that. We can pray. We can help. There's an army of volunteers in our care ministry that can help and serve in various ways. But we can't unless we know, unless we find out. So if you're sick, call the elders. In our, pick up the phone and call the church. Call the care ministry. And we'll come to help. Sometimes, just uh, since you guys are the ministers, I'm just a pastor. Sometimes when people are sick and really tired, they don't pick up the phone. They're just too overwhelmed. So as a friend of someone that's sick, could you call the church? Let us know. See how we could help. How we could like unleash the power of love on some family. They don't have to go here. If they're friends of yours, they're friends of ours. See how we could help. So step one was inform the church leadership. Second one is anoint their head with oil. Or I'm sorry, anoint them with oil. Pray and the... What that means, some of your Bibles that have notes at the bottom will tell you it could be for medicinal or medical reasons. It could be for like spiritual anointing reasons. I think when you look into it with details, you'll see that while oil was used for medicine, it's probably not in the context of going to the elders to pray. And that's the way we look at it. We look at it as a, a physical symbol of something that's taking place spiritually. Anointing your head with oil in the Older Testament was a glorious event where it was bringing a God's blessing upon you. In the Old Testament, it was covering their heads with oil. We're not going to do that. But we're not completely convinced that it's just physical, but we don't have to completely understand to obey. So we do it because it says to do it in this Bible, and so we, what does the Bible say? Anoint their head with oil. So we do. And then it says, finally it says that they would pray in the name of the Lord. And that's what we do at Grace. Here's how it looks. You know, details. Somebody contacts the church. Our care ministry contacts them. And we look at a, a convenient time for everyone to be able to meet. Quite often, it's between services. Children are cared for and instructed in our children's ministry. And we can have some time together. Sometimes we go to a person's house or a hospital bed, whatever it might be. We'll take out a little vial of oil. We'll put a spot on their head. People will put the, their hands on the shoulders or, or their head, whatever's allowed, whatever that person would be comfortable with. And then we pray in the name of the Lord, but not just any name. We pray for God Almighty, sovereign God of the universe. We pray to the name Jehovah Rapha, the God who heals. It is our expectation that someone would be miraculously healed each and every time. It's not always the case, but we, we have our stories. We have seen miracles take place. 
When people are significantly sick, they call the elders to pray for them. It's a blessing to everyone that experiences. Those giving the prayers and those receiving it. Hey, let's do some drills. Ready? Here we go. What if you're suffering? How about if you're cheerful? Well, what if you're sick? Better pray. What if you're guilt-ridden? Better pray. Look at the next set of verses, 15 and 16. We've read some of uh, 15. And the Lord, uh, I'm sorry, and the prayer offered in faith will restore the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if, if he has committed any sins, they will be forgiven him. Therefore, there's the application, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. So the context of the previous verses is now getting into an application. That's what therefore means. He's going to give two applications. But look how James is overlapping kind of the nature of man as both physical and spiritual. And he's saying, look, these two are connected to each other. You can do things evil, like with your body, and it can affect your soul. And then your soul gets mad and does vengeance on your body and makes you sick. You can do things to your mind, with your, with, to your soul and spirit that causes your body to become ill. And so he's saying, you know, sometimes these things are so interconnected, you, you need to seek help and prayer for both physical and spiritual. I'll tell you, bitterness, resentment, lack of forgiveness, anger, extended guilt, these can literally poison your blood and devolve your organs. And so James says, look, there's two things you need to do. Therefore, therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another. Confess your sins to one another is making peace, making things right, as much as it's possible to you. That's what Paul will say, as much as it's possible for you to be at peace with all men, do what needs to be done, say what needs to be said, confess your sins to one another, forgive one another. Sometimes this is easy, sometimes not so much. The easiest person for you to do this with is sometimes people you love, sometimes it's the hardest. But I have found that your home of origin, where, you know, the house you grew up in, if this is done well and regularly, you probably have pretty good basic skills. But if not, you don't even know the first thing about it. That's my experience. I can't remember a time, you know, where apologies were regularly given out. And, and honestly, one of the biggest growth areas in my life has been in the area of confession of sin and reception of confession. And if it weren't for Ray Anderson, I wouldn't be where I am today. He teaches a class. He literally teaches a class. It's called Peacemakers. He teaches people how to do that. So if you're having difficulty with that, with this application, James clearly is stating, confess your sins to one another, then maybe you could get some help. Ask around if and don't. Just call the church. Confess your sins to one another, and then he says, pray for one another. I mean, we know this. Every believer is a minister, but we, you could ask people, how, how can I pray for you? You could ask people that are at work or anywhere, else, anywhere that you bump into. You can just ask them, can I pray for you? How can I pray for you? Because I happen to believe 
that prayer is the slender nerve that moves the muscle of omnipotence. How can I pray for you? How can I move that nerve on your behalf? The application that James draws to, to my mind readily in this section is, do you have someone that you can confess your sins to? Release, dump, <laughs> let it all out on. Do you have someone that you can confess sins to? Do you have someone that can pray for you, that you can pray for them? If you don't have someone that you can confess sins to and, can, and that you can pray for, I've got an idea. You tell me. Better, boom, you passed. Better pray. Why not ask the God in heaven? He says, ask and seek and knock. Ask for that kind of friend. Seek that kind of friend. Knock, bang on that door and watch what a good, good father will deliver for you. Because he wants you to be able to experience and practice these disciplines. All right, now it's time to just take a test. Here we go. Ready? You're suffering? What if you're cheerful? What if you're really sick? Yeah, but guilt-ridden. There you go. We're doing great, huh? It's almost muscle memory here. So why James, famous for his practicality, for just like getting it down, making it easy, what do we do? Why does James keep saying over and again, you'd better pray? Because it works. He hasn't changed his tone or his temperament or his values. It works. He's firing missiles into enemy territory. And just to prove that point, look, and he's preaching a good sermon. He gives us an illustration. 16 and 8 through 18 says, effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed earnestly that it might not rain. And it did not rain on the earth for three years and six months. And then he prayed again, and the sky poured rain, and the earth produced its fruit. <laughs> this is a great illustration. I can, I can relate to this. I hope you can too. Elijah was a man just like us. If you study the life of Elijah in 1 Kings, you'll see that he has these moments of courage that are sometimes followed by a series of cowardly fears and even drifts into like depression. Occasional courage with fear and depression. I, I, can, I can relate to this man. He's a regular guy. In other words, James isn't saying you should see my older brother, you know, Jesus. That's how you ought to be praying. No, he's one like this guy, Elijah. Yeah, we can all relate to that. And who's Elijah up against in the story that he's referring to? The queen who is so monstrously wicked that her name has become synonymous with evil, Queen Jezebel. And she's got this king of a husband that's a weakling wimp. His name is, I don't even care to remember, I don't know, Ahab or something like that. But in, in, in this situation, what is this poor little prophet going to do against this you know, just narcissistic, crazy queen who kills people because she can. 
He prays earnestly. <laughs> he better pray. And so he, he prays to try to get everybody's attention that there would be no rain. And so it, there's a drought for three years and six months, it says. Do I have your attention, Queen Jezebel? Because this is all just a big word picture to help you understand who has a right to rule creation. Put a complete stop to not just the economy, but now all of Israel's health. They're the king and queen of, of Israel, the northern kingdom. And so just to prove the point, there's a, a battle royale at Mount Carmel, and this is where it takes place. And after that happens, like who gets to rule the universe? Yahweh wins that little contest. And, and then just so that everyone understands that Elijah is moving that nerve that moves the muscle of omnipotence, he says, watch as I pray. And he squats down, he puts his head right here between his knees and he prays for rain. He sends his assistant out and says, hey, look towards the Mediterranean and see if anything's happening. You know what happens? Not a thing. So he goes back and he prays again. Sends him out, nothing. On the seventh time, his assistant came back and says, Elijah, so here's the thing. There's this little cloud. It's about the size of my fist. And Elijah says, run for cover. <laughs> the next sentence says, and there's a terrific, terrible rainstorm that comes. Yeah. Just a bunch of little old ladies praying. Power of prayer. Don't grind your teeth over this. Just fall in love with Yahweh and just talk to him about everything all the time. There's a famous uh, Civil War general known for his courage in his memoirs. He said, it's because I believe in the sovereignty of God because I'm constantly in prayer. I always feel his presence. I pray when I drink water. I pray when I read. I pray when I write letters. So I pray in battle. It's, it brings about a confidence that you're in the presence of God. Finally, my brothers and sisters, when you encounter various trials, you can have joy. You better pray. And the second thing he says is rescue family. This is the last paragraph in James' epistle. He says, restore your brothers and sisters. Restore your brothers and sisters. Like, Listen and then watch for this section, how James isn't just speaking of the person being restored. Look how he's encouraging the rescuer that goes out to get him. Look what he says. And my brothers and brothers and sisters, if any among you strays from the truth and one turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his ways will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Never grow tired in trying to help a lost soul. Never grow weary in helping a prodigal son or a prodigal daughter come to their senses. Forgive me for adding to the best parable ever told, but let me, let's look at it this way. The parable of the prodigal son, and you're in the story. You're in the story where the prodigal is now 
run out of money. He's rejected his father. He took the money that he thought he deserved in his inheritance. And now that he's out of money and squandered it on a reckless life, he's also out of friends. He has no place to stay. And so you go and you hire him on your ranch. And you know this young man's a Jewish boy and he's got a lesson to learn. So you have him work the pigs. And as he's working the pigs, you feed him just a little, enough to keep him hungry, but you feed the pigs the especially good stuff. So as he's feeding the swine, he envies their food. <laughs> You're playing your part in bringing him to his senses. After two weeks or two months, you'll know it. He's kind of leaning on the fence, watching him feed those pigs. And you say, hey, son, how's this working for you? You ever thought about going back and working for your dad? He doesn't have any pigs. It's got to be better than this. And he looks up and says, yeah, you're right. As he heads back home, you follow him at a distance so that he can't see you. You're invisible. No one knows you're there. You're just there to make sure he makes it home safely. And so you're on this hill, right on that tree line. And as you see him approach his father's ranch, the father runs to the son and grabs the son and kisses him. And the son pushes away and he starts his confession. And the father grabs him again and then starts barking off all these orders. And you can hear it from the top of the hill. He's, he's yelling at the res, some of the servants back at the ranch house and says, give him my best robe because he's going to wear my robe, bring a ring for his finger and some sandals for his feet. He's a prince again. My son was dead and now he's alive. He was lost and now he's found. Somebody find the finest fatted calf and slaughter him because we're going to celebrate. Today is a great day. Everyone starts walking in. And that father who represents the holy father in heaven knows that you're not invisible. He knows the part you played. He turns to the hill in that tree line and looks at you. And you look at him. You did not grow weary and helping a prodigal make his way back to the father. Boy, that's the lesson we're to learn. We could be part of that. Don't grow weary in helping people. Sometimes the hardest people we'll ever confront or the easiest people we'll ever confront is the people we love the most and they need this. James is saying, it's worth it. Whatever it costs is worth it. To have that father look at you and thank you. So consider it a joy, my brothers and sisters, when you encounter and live this life of various multiple hostile trials. And how are you going to do that? You'd better pray. You better be prayed for and 
always do whatever you can to rescue family. Let's stay close until the sun returns. I was thinking of a perfect way to seal this last sermon, this conclusion of this epistle. It'd be communion. Why don't we pray together as we start communion? Lord, we are grateful for the words of James. They're your words through his pen. Lord, I would ask that uh, your spirit would bring to our minds, our spirit, the things we've learned about, about how we can live in a world that's filled with various trials. Now, how we need to not be tempted in times of weakness, how we need to use our, our words to encourage and not destroy, we understand their power, how we need to learn to be generous every opportunity we can, now we need, just need to care for each other, not turn on each other, how to suffer long and endure well, and now to pray and to help our, our lost brothers and sisters. So Lord, in this communion time, I'd ask that we would commune, that we would find ourselves connected to one another in a new and a deeper way. Let this be a symbol of going forward, not just looking back. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. 15 weeks ago, uh, we started our semester together, and I was teaching on a passage about uh, Samson, a character in the Old Testament, who was born into a Nazarite vow. And the Nazarite vow was a statement of holiness, a season of life where you, let's be holy. It's a time where they abstained from everything grape and didn't cut their hair or shave, and I only cut my hair one time. I was going to do the Nazarite vow. Fifteen weeks, here we are. 12 weeks in the book of James. And like I've said before, he comes at us like a coach with a whistle, a drill sergeant with stripes, sometimes a prophet <laughs> from the Old Testament. And today, like a preacher. But that's not how James really writes. Those are close, but not spot on. Spot on is this. James comes to us like an older brother. He's the younger brother of Jesus, but he's our older brother. And I say that because 15 times James says, brothers and sisters. Many times he's attached to possessive pronoun to that, my brothers and sisters. This is a, an affectionate, loving, communal letter for that older brother that was born way before the rest of us. He's went out in the world and saw how rough it is and he comes back and sits at the fireplace and gathers all of us around and says, this is how you can survive out there. It can actually be a joyful experience. Listen to me. I hope you've enjoyed the teaching time. I hope you've learned things and have applied those to your life. We're doing communion together and by the way, if you're a brother or a sister in Christ, if you've 
understood that you cannot earn your way to heaven, but rather Jesus Christ uh, paid for your sins and you get to inherit his righteousness, then you're, you're family. And so this is a family communal event. James started it by calling us all brothers and sisters. So we're going to have a family meal together. It's called the Lord's table and it's purposeful. It brings us in community with each other and in communion with God, especially the spirit. It reminds us of the son on the night he was betrayed, he took the bread and he broke it. And he said, in just a matter of hours, my, this is my body and it'll be broken for you. I'll pay the debt so you won't have to. Before we take the bread, let's ponder the joy that we get to experience because of the misery that Jesus had to experience to endure the cross for the penalty of our sins. Let's reflect on that for just a moment. Let's take the bread together. After that, Jesus took the cup. He said, I'm making a new covenant. I'm gonna fulfill the promises that were made about me. He said, this is a blood covenant and the blood will be mine. This is my blood. It will be given up for you. It won't be the blood of bulls or sheep. It will be blood of the second Adam. He said, take this cup, take this blood to remind you of the covenant we're making today. Let's, let's take the cup together. Another reason we're sharing communion today is the reason that Jesus asked us to do communion, <laughs> told us to do communion over and over again. It's he knows that we'll forget. He knows that we'll grow tired. He knows that we will wanna quit. And so he says, do this meal, this Passover meal made anew, do this in remembrance of me. When you eat this body and drink this cup, do this in remembrance of me until I come again. James said multiple times throughout his epistle, we need to stay strong. We need not to turn on each other. We need to be excessively generous. We need to make sure that our, our words are used to build and not destroy because the Lord is coming soon. The Lord is at hand. The Lord is at the door. <laughs> but we just keep forgetting. And so we come back to the Lord's table communion to be reminded it won't be long. 
it won't be long. My grace is sufficient for you. I'll be back soon. Let's celebrate the soon and coming Christ in a last little word of prayer and then a wonderful song together. Would you join me? Lord, come Lord Jesus. Come soon, Maranatha. We are growing tired. We look around the world, we wonder all the injustice and all the evil. Are you watching? Are you taking notes? Of course you are. Lord, we, I'd ask that this communion meal would be a strengthening, uh, a building up, an encouragement to us of the promises that you've made and the promises that are soon to be kept. So Lord, build us up, not just in you, but with each other. May our roots be so intertwined that, you, that we'd just be so connected to one another in love and the blood of Christ that we, we, we feel your presence even in those relationships. We're grateful, Lord. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.